Welcome to After the Shofar, a Jewish Climate Network podcast, bringing you lactose-free morsels of insight for a meaningful Jewish year ahead. With fresh Jewish Australian voices, we'll be diving into big questions inspired by this time in the Jewish calendar. How might the Jewish practice of teshuva, repentance, make us better Jews, better people and better climate leaders? And when all is said and done, after the shofar blows for the final time, what do we each want to stand for and be proud of when the new year rolls around? Thank you to the Erdi Foundation for supporting these important conversations and for your commitment to Jewish leadership on climate issues. We couldn't have done this without you. Now, let's dive in. A content warning for young listeners. There are a couple of swear words in this episode. We feel they're appropriate, so we've left them in. If you're not into that, you can tune in next week. Our guest this week is Osher Ginsberg. He's a dad, a stepdad, a podcast producer extraordinaire, and as you'll hear in this episode, a pretty decent melodica player. You will recognise him as the host of shows like The Masked Singer and The Bachelor. What you might not know is that he's got plenty to say about all things climate, mental health and a future of abundance. Osher will be interviewed by Joel Lazar, the CEO of the Jewish Climate Network. We hope you enjoy. Well, good to be here with you. Um, we are here with Osher Ginsberg recording a really exciting podcast around this uh, end of the Jewish year, around the month of Elul. We've got the Jewish New Year coming up, Rosh Hashanah. Uh, we've got Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and uh, we thought it would be wonderful to sit down with Osha and just have a conversation about um, a bit about Osha, about his life, and views on all kinds of stuff. You know, a bit of Judaism, a bit of climate change, and just see where it goes. I was reading online. I think it was an old blog of yours, perhaps, that uh, as far back as two thousand and nine, you were in Tel Aviv and you came across a certain shaman, uh, and uh, yeah. Do you remember well, that the story? Two, actually, that was 2005 when I met that guy. Oh, well, you're going to have to revise the blog. Oh, yeah. Oh, no, 2009 was when I started calling myself Osher. Oh, okay. 2005 was when I met the guy. Right, so you met the shaman in 2005. Yeah, yeah. He was a Kabbalist who, if you are unfamiliar with Kabbalah, it's kind of a, a kind of pre-Judaism mystical kind of vibe. And, look, I'm I'm an interested person I'm a I'm a very much a science person, uh, yet the stuff that he was telling me that day, I was like, well, either this is some sort of excellent conjuring trick, um, because he was able to tell me stuff about myself that nobody nobody knew, and this is kind of really kind of pre Wikipedia and pre and pre too much internet. Uh, he had about a hundred words of English, so I don't think he could have done too much googling in 2005. There was much googling available. And I was like, well, okay, you've told me so much about myself that there's no way you could have possibly known. All right, I'm interested. What have you got to tell me? And he goes, well, would you agree that I've been able to describe to you what your life's been like so far? Like, yeah. So would you agree that then if I kept going, I'd be able to tell you where it's going? I said, okay, I'm listening. He goes, well, you've got to do is put an extra bit of energy in your name, change your name, and you can change your life. I was like, well, it might not help, but it might not hurt. So I guess I've come to feel more and more that changing my name probably has more to do with nominative determinism than any kind of spiritual energy or anything like that because it allowed me to put a clear line between my previous life that uh, was not, I guess, not sober and not very well mentally to someone who is sober and 
just clearly committed to every day trying to be as mentally healthy as I possibly can be. And with that aggressive rebrand came <laughs> an interesting <laughs> turn in my career. And uh, it's kind of gone there ever since. I mean, Calvin Broadhouse is Calvin Broadhouse until he became Snoop Dogg. So, mm. you know, yeah, O'Shea Jackson's O'Shea Jackson until he became Ice Cube. So look, there's a lot to it. Yeah, and Osha means happiness in Hebrew, doesn't it? Sure so does. You're, you're trying to bring happiness and joy, I suppose, into your life when you made that. that uh, yeah, it was. Awesome. It was awesome. Look, honestly, it was just I met a bloke called Osha, and he was an ex-commando. I mean, they all. <laughs> he was the coolest motherfucker I ever met. You know, kind of smoked <laughs> a cigarette at the corner of his mouth while he was, you know, driving and reading a map and texting all at the same time. You know, it was like a bloke in his mid forties. He was about ten years older than me, and he was like well built and like I'm like, damn, you are freaking cool what's your name so what's it mean it means happiness he says this you know while he's kind of holding a cigarette between one lip and, and talking to me with his other side of his mouth i was pretty impressed yeah yeah so i was like that's, that's a cool name i like that name and so i checked with the dude and he said yeah that fits so there it was the rest is history well that was 2009 it's been 13 years since then so i don't know if you re- yeah. realize but this year is the bar mitzvah of your name technically speaking uh, uh, can i have a playstation, can I have a PlayStation 5 yeah, Mazel Tov. Yeah, I'll, 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 I'll send it to you in the mail. Changing your name, changing your fate—that's very much sort of the theme of this part of year, the Jewish calendar, because right. we kind of we confront ourselves, who we have been in the last year or so, and we have an opportunity to kind of reset and and be a new person if we want to in the coming year. You know, that's a very interesting time to be sort of sharing stories like that. Have you, do you have any experience with uh, these festivals around this time of year in your own personal life or your family, the Jewish New Year or yeah. Day of Atonement? What's it been like for you? Any particular memories? I've always kind of grown up uh, half and half and firmly understood, you know, which, you know, each half. Now, growing up in Queensland, in Brisbane, um, the other half was fairly absent. It was pretty much, you know, Catholic, 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 which uh, I quickly, very quickly became disenfranchised with. And hunting, my, my father was, you know, I remember being a kid growing up in Brisbane looking for any other Ginsbergs in the phone book and there were none. <laughs> you know, we had a phone book a long time ago and I was like, wow, we're the only people with this name in our city. And, you know, my father had, you know, we found like the one other Jew in Brisbane and we went to their place for Pesach once. And, you know, I remember, like, I think most people remember their first Pesach. It's like, fuck, when do we eat? You know, <laughs> yeah. like we've been in the edge of someone else's house. There was yeah. weird food and I'm so hungry. Why do we keep singing? Can I eat now? I was like, I don't know. I was like eight or seven or something. Why am yeah. I wearing a hat? And, <laughs> but it wasn't until, you know, later when I started spending time in in the Middle East, um, that it all started to kind of click and to understand it was it was as much a part of who I am uh, as as the other part, as the stuff that come from my mother's side. Mm-hmm. Um, but then also to kind of reconcile that with that, I personally have no at all belief in any kind of interventionist God. I none at all. We are just humans. We are just you know atoms contemplating atoms, <laughs> and when we die, we die. Um, the only thing that we can do is while we're alive, and that's it. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, to be honest, I mean, I've heard it said that it's actually very Jewish to have these grapples or, like, to deny God. It's like all these incredible stories in Judaism. I mean, obviously everybody 
you know, challenges and has questions around this stuff. But you got these crazy, really famous stories about the old pre, you know, Kabbalistic or Hasidic masters who would like get in a room with God and be like, "What's the deal?" You know, like explain yeah. this. You know, so it's yeah. it's quite paradoxical as well. Yeah, it's not to say though that there's parts of you know Jewish culture that I don't uh, think are incredibly powerful, and the parts that I really resonated with were the baked in traditions around community and the baked in traditions around helping other people and the baked in traditions about every year with, you know, making atonement. Essentially, mm, if you're mm. in a, if you're in a 12 step recovery program, there's the ninth, the ninth step is to make amends. Mm. And that's a very important thing to do to understand how you might have, you know, taken a misstep and messed up someone's life and then or day. And if you take a step to, and be, you can't just write it down. You actually be in their face and say, look, I did this thing and I can see it really messed you up and I'm sorry that I did that and I'm going to try real hard not to do that again. Hopefully then it puts you on a clearer path forward to not do that again and therefore not feel bad inside your body and not feel bad inside. So I really like the idea of, you know, every Friday night we come together, you know, and we we give charity as as a part of our, of our cultural practice and whether you believe or not in you know, any kind of deity or afterlife, that doesn't matter because it means you're being good to community. And these things, uh, I really, you know, it's extraordinary to see these these traditions, these ceremonies uh, around a Friday night dinner uh, or, uh, you know, a Shabbat where we actually take a break from each, uh, you know, work and we actually just be with each other and or a day of reflection or fasting or something like this. These are things that have allowed a cultural continuity despite a vast diaspora uh, across the globe. And when I think about what our planet's going to look like in the next 7,500 years, and I think about the diasporas that's already happening and diasporas that will continue to happen and, and just ramp up, there's so many lessons in what the Jewish community globally has done that can help, say, for example, a Pacific Island culture. You talk about your culture being enmeshed in the land. I mean, my wife is from Fiji and there's villages all around the coast where hundreds if not thousands of years that village has been there and their ancestors are buried you know right next to the house where they sleep and they have always known everyone they've ever grown up with and in less than 100 years that land will be three meters two meters underwater how do you then create a cultural continuity for your kids your grandkids to maintain who you are where the people from this village which is only 800 meters from the next one but you're very different from those people so how do you maintain that cultural continuity that makes you who you are the word is called a lifescape, not a landscape, but a lifescape. How do you maintain that lifescape? And the lessons from the Jewish diaspora, I think, can be extraordinarily helpful to cultures all around the world as managed retreat becomes a part of life. I love that. Yeah. I mean, it's an unfortunate but beautiful part of Jewish history that we've had to navigate destruction every generation and become a portable culture in a way with a knapsack, you know, the, our core texts, mm. our core values, put them in your bag and just take them where you need to go and, and essentially rebuild. Yeah. Yeah, it is. It's devastating to think about, but it's necessary. There's a few cultures and countries that have had, you know, diaspora, whether it be the Jewish diaspora or, for example, the, the Greek diaspora. The Pacific diaspora has been happening for the last 1,500 years and it's just going to absolutely ramp up. And so I would hope that there is empathy for other communities and other cultures who are now losing their homelands for stuff that has nothing to do with them and are being pushed out of their ancestral lands to be honest, because of nothing that they had anything to contribute to. They are not the people that other people that are the reasons there are storms wiping their islands clean every couple of years. So hopefully 
there is empathy being led by the people in communities who have experienced and live with diaspora as a part of their cultural story. And there's empathy there for those people because, you know, we all like to feel special, like, oh, we're the only, we're the only ones that have had to go through this. Well, no, every, everyone's going to, it's going to happen to a lot of people. In fact, billions of people. We're going to have to remember that everyone, you know, we're all just humans. Yeah. Well, let's dive a bit into that now. Now that we're kind of on the topic of, you know, of climate and climate impacts, I'm kind of curious and I feel like listeners will be interested in this as well. What led you to start thinking about the need to act on this generational challenge? Was there a specific moment in time where it was like, you know, like, oh my God. Joel, like many things, it's, um, you know, these things are gradual. I remember I stopped eating meat in my mid twenties sometime around 95, 96, kind of slowly chicken and then red meat and then fish eventually and then eggs, 2002. And that was always about land use and water and energy. Eventually it became about compassion and eventually it became about not wanting to kill things so I could live. But it was always about land use. It was always about finding out how much land needs to be used for farming meat versus how much land needs to be used to farm exactly the same amount of protein and calories out of plants. And it's, it's gobsmacking the just thousands and thousands of liters of water required to create one kilo of meat protein to plant protein or land use, or, you know, how much, you know, bang for buck you get with feed in versus protein out and how much land is being used to grow food to then get fed to livestock to then get slaughtered to then get and how much of that livestock body gets wasted you know it just seems like complete what a waste of everything i didn't want a part of that and i kind of realized in in the mid 90s i'm going to see a point where humanity has to make a choice about how much meat they eat and we're going to come up against it we're going to come up against that point where we go right we could keep eating steak or we could find other ways to feed ourselves. You know, so that's kind of where it started for me. And then it's kind of always been that way and kind of, I remember, but, but, I, but then again, I'm, I'm old, mate. I'm nearly 50. So I grew up at a time when there was a huge amount of noise made about chlorofluorocarbons in um, refrigerants and pressurized cans, like, you know, paint cans and hairspray and stuff. And it was very clear that the immediate effects of those were being seen. And there was in 1985, 86, there was all this modeling about polar ice caps melting and holes in the ozone layer and there was photos from satellites and it was really quite clear that there was mm. a giant there's a fucking hole in the sky yeah and you and uv in those areas is way higher and sometimes the hole in the sky would extend up over southern australia and you'd get super fucking mega sunburnt yeah and jesus this is like you'd feel like this is bad i this remember yeah cool. yeah yeah and there was there was a thing called I think it was the Montreal Protocol or Montreal Convention or something, and the 186 companies or something that created it all got together and went, all right, and I signed a piece of paper, and by '92 it was done. Yeah. And so I knew that it happened before, and I'm like, well, okay, well we'll just do that with this. Yeah. But um, there's probably less trillions of dollars of you know GDP tied up in acceler in, in refrigerants than there yeah. are in fossil fuels. So it's yeah. a little trickier around if, energy. If graffiti policy. artists had very strong lobbies, then maybe the world would be would be different. But they don't. Well, that's and that's that's the thing, you know. And so like it's always been that way. But it was yeah, it was in 2014. It was very much coming to a head. It was very, very much coming to a head. And it was in 2014 when it all kind of flipped on me. I ended up having such intense climate anxiety that I um, I actually I actually went bonkers. I, I ended up having to be on antipsychotics and it was really horrible. I got really, really sick. I was having delusions and I was seeing floods and fires and things that weren't there and I was wanting to run down the street and warn people. 
thankfully I had some really good, I went pretty much straight to the doctor. I got in there about three days later. It took a while, it took a long time, about a year and a half, two years or so until I started to feel a bit better. But it's, it's, it's been a journey, but I think it's super, super important to actually start to gently, gently explore what is coming and what is baked into our atmosphere because the antidote to panic is a plan, all right? And if suddenly you realize, well, what, why, why, did, why did no one tell me that the Gold Coast is going to be underwater? Why did no one tell me that Australia is not going to be able to, you know, we don't have water security or food security? Well, what do I do now? Like, well, all this data is there. All the science is there. You can now make a plan. You can make a smart plan about where you might have invested your money or where your house might be or what kind of roof you've got. We're hoping to renovate our place. And I remember saying to the hydraulic engineer, the, the guy who's up to the, you know, does all the water on the site, I'm like, no, nah, mate, I want, I want cans gutters. I want the big Queensland gutters and the big Queensland downpipes. No, nah, there's no, no, that's over-engineered. There's no, man. have you read the fucking IPCC report? Do you, know what, do you know what weather's coming? I want category five cyclone roof on yeah. my house in Sydney and I want cans, cans yeah, gutters. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. When those storms come and we're living here in 20, 30 years, mm. We'll be fine. Yeah, yeah. Because we saw it coming. Yeah. It's simply that. If you've got a plan, you know what to do. It's like knowing where the fire escape is. Okay. We know we know that we've never seen an economic externality so extraordinarily, brazenly, boldly on the horizon, marching to us in, in scientifically documented paces to make amazing choices about how we can not only be okay, but also perhaps thrive and maybe even, you know, really prosper. Yeah. Yeah. What else is going on? Well, let's dive into that, the idea of thriving, because most people, when they hear the description that you just gave, and we're going to be hearing this in, for those who go to synagogue, it's who, who's going to die by fire? Who's going to die by water? Who's going to die by sword? Like, it's quite a, a serious time of year where we hear these kind of doomsday sort of um, metaphors yeah, right. and symbols. But then the end of the, the prayers on, on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, are there's an answer to this. It's, it kind of comes up hopeful. It says, prayer. Uh, atonement and charity. That's the answer to all of these bad things that we're facing. So maybe that plus solar panels, plus decarbonization, like well, there's, there's a bunch of other stuff, but there's that kind of tension between how do I, on the one hand, hold what's coming in one hand, yeah. but then also yeah. what do I do on a day-to-day basis? Your plan, as you say, what's my plan? Like how yeah. do you dance between these things? What can listeners learn about? Okay, I'm, I'll go. Let's say they go and read the IPCC report after this chat, with you, yeah. and they realize yeah. what you know what you've just said, and they want it. Well, how do I how do I live every day? You know, with hope. It's it's like anything. You know, when we all have kids, the first if you've had a child, if you've ever had the joy of having a child in your life, I my first kid was a stepchild, and I uh, I sat there looking at this kid that I had my paternal instinct switched on like a light switch and suddenly I'm like, I'd do anything to save you. And at the same moment, I am in one hand holding how much incredible joy and possibility and light and, you know, what there is for this kid to live. Wow, life's going to be amazing. I'll do anything to give her everything she wants. And what have I done? What have I done? What am I giving her? What world am I giving her to live in? But I'll take it to something my mum told me who fled with the retreating German army out of Lithuania in 1943, 44. I wrote a book, by the way, and I wrote about my grandmother in, um, uh, in Lithuania, uh, which if you know your 
your history of Lithuania was where a lot of the pretty gnarly hand-to-hand stuff happened to the, um, but before it got mechanized, it was where the pretty hand-to-hand Holocaust stuff happened. It was pretty horrible. And my, my grandmother actually saved a bunch of young Jewish girls um, out of the main cities. I wrote, I wrote all about it in, in, in the book. It's a pretty, pretty amazing story. But um, we all know the form of the Nazis, all right, and they were occupying the city at the time. And when they got the news that the Russians were coming, they went, we better get out of here. So that'll give you an idea of how intense the idea of Russians showing up was. So they wanted to go back with the Nazis. So <laughs> yeah. That's what they did. Wow. So Mum talks about they were walking like many people did. They walked for months, all right? They walked from Kaunas south and, you know, all the way across Europe. And they ended up, they ended up back in Germany. And mum talks about those months on the road in the winter and the hard stuff and she got, you know, being strafed by planes and all this kind of stuff. And mum said, even during that time, people who had left everything and had no idea where we were going to, you know, people who are, you know, doctors and lawyers and engineers and, you know, athletes and writers and poets and artists, no idea what life held for them that afternoon, let alone the next day or the next year. She said they were still having, they were still starting families. They were still finding time to make love and bring children into the world. And I remember her telling me this and going, you're right. Like, cause I was so afraid about what kind of world my kids are going to grow up into. She goes like, it's, it's going to be okay. We figured it out. Like their whole world was rubble. They had no idea what was going to happen. Their world was rubble. And they were walking to a country that was rubble and was being destroyed at the time by the allies. So they didn't know what was coming, but they still went, she said people still had fights over dinner, argued about who had too many spoons of that. Person's playing with my tie. I want to play with it. You know, all that stuff, family says, family life goes on. So holding that in your heart, knowing that that stuff still happens and that we will figure it out. And also, I guess, doing your best that you possibly can. And I guess when it comes to atonement, there's, look, we didn't know for a long time what was happening. Part of that is because we might have willfully ignored it, but also there's a part of that that we aren't really responsible for because we were not being told the truth because there were you know gigantic levers of power that had very vested interest in feeding us disinformation or not feeding us the whole picture. And this is well covered in uh, you know, books like Merchants of Doubt and things like that. So that's okay, but now we know. So we know. So now, you know, I love four of my most favorite words, Joel. So what? Now what? So what can we do now? What can we do as far as atonement goes? What can we do? Have a look at how we got to where we got to. Okay. So we were able to advance ourselves economically by using this kind of energy and using this kind of energy has put countries and places in this world that have nothing to do with our economic advancement in incredible peril. So how can we help those people? Because ultimately their problem is our problem. Because if you don't think that helping places like our nearest neighbors Pacific in the South Pacific and Papua New Guinea and Southeast Asia, Vietnam, most of Vietnam is two meters above the high tide mark. That's, that's not a lot. Helping those countries helps our country. We're a gigantic landmass, all right? And helping those countries be climate resilient means that we are helping our country because eventually people will come here and they've always come here. And that's fine. We've got boundless plans to share. It says so in the second verse of our national anthem. We like to forget that part. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so it sounds like it's really, I love it because you're talking about that story you told about your mom. It's really about the inherent hope that so many human beings have almost baked into their DNA. Like we just, that's our survival mechanism. So it's like, I'm hearing you say that we have almost a privilege 
to be. I mean, it's frightful that we're here now in this time in history, but we also kind of have yeah. this privilege in a way yep. to lead the answer. Like this is the one, you know, set of 10, 20 years that's going to make a difference for the next thousands. And, and we have the chance. We have the chance right now. We have the chance to do it and be on the right side of history. You know, we really do. Do we want our kids to be on podcasts in, you know, 80 years from now talking about how their grandfather did this thing or their grandmother did this thing like I just told you? You know, because my, my grandmother's on the right side of history. I think it was six or eight kids. One of them wrote a book, but we never found out the name of the author. It was called I, Jew, full stop. And it was published in America. She ended up in America. Um, but we never we never found out who she was. Um, but still, you know, there's six or eight kids that got saved. And we want to be that person in 80 years, don't we? We don't want to be, uh, they sat around and, and, you know, they put all their money into you know, coal or they, you know, where did, I thought your parents were rich. Well, they were, but they invested everything in, in indexed oil funds. And then it all fell to shit when solar became cheaper than anything else, but they'd refuse to move. <laughs> yeah, well, that's totally it. So, I mean, let's say, you know, we envisage uh, or we invite, let's say the listeners of this episode to think about 50 years from now and the opportunity they now have, specifically yeah. speaking, like what you know, I mean, members of our community are as diverse as any community. We've got business leaders, philanthropists, artists, you know, teachers, parents, students, young people. Like, what what specifically are we talking about here for those who are like, all right, I hear the call. I hear what Usher's saying. I'm going to start doing one thing this coming year. What do people do? The first thing you do is you move your super. Number one, move your super because that is sleeping money that if your super is tied up in fossil fuels, like you can find enough graphs to tell you where that's going. But also it means you can sleep at night knowing that your super's doing the right thing for you and your kids. That's the easiest, easiest thing to do. It literally takes about 10 minutes and you can put your super somewhere. Um, there's plenty of funds out there. I'll, you know, I, I won't say which one I'm involved. You, you make your own choices there, but there's plenty of places you can do it. Like that's, you know, first and foremost, that's number one. Market pressure is really, really important. And we've seen how hard super funds can push to make industry change. And that is a big, big deal. Where you choose to invest your money, every dollar's a vote. All right. We don't just get to vote every three years. Too short in my opinion. Uh, but yeah, yeah. Uh, every single dollar is a vote. Every single time you spend a buck, you vote uh, for what you want, what you want more of and what you want less of. Putting market pressure on the upward market pressure is a very powerful thing. You know, and have a look, be smart about it. Look at the flood maps of the cities that you live in or, or where you might have your in investments. You might have invested uh, brilliantly <laughs> before when I was, you know, you know, still Andrew and, and bonkers. I invested all this money in far north, western Australia. There's this, oh, it's amazing. It's just great, freaking great. It's a farm. It's going to fly. I'm going to make mangoes for everybody. The cyclone. It's like, oh, because <laughs> I wasn't smart. I didn't check the weather map, right? You hadn't heard of the IPCC yet. Wow, it was 2004. I, I can't remember which report that, you know, it was five. I can't remember. But, you know, I lost a ton of money because I wasn't smart about where I put, put my cash. But, but it's also in having conversations. It's having conversations with people who might otherwise be only getting their news from one place, all right, and framing the conversation. I found if you frame your conversation in doom, people just shut off. If you frame your conversation in possibility, people are well interested, well interested. So if you start talking about, um, like, for example, uh, I'll pick something out of the air, heat pumps. Heat pumps are literally going to be the 
biggest thing since sliced bread. Heat pumps are going to be like greatest fucking thing you've ever, ever seen. I'm getting one installed next week, actually. <laughs> Mate, throw your money at that. Throw your money at battery storage or, or kinetic storage. Like, like be smart about what's going to happen. Think, think about, you know, I'm not an investor advisor, but, you know, there's, there's places you can invest your money that is, is super easy. You can do between now and the end of the day. But it's also having conversations with people who are older than you. Like I have, and I've been driving electric cars since 2011. I'm never going to have another internal combustion engine car again. You got you got a Nissan Leaf before they were cool, if I understand, right? I got a Nissan Leaf in 2011. I did. Yeah. I also have a, a cargo bike that can carry me and Wolf and Audrey. It carries 200 kilos. It's amazing. It's got a motor in it. it. Gets us up the hills and down the hills. It's fantastic. I also have an electric motorbike, an electric Harley Davidson, which is the funnest, most amazing thing ever. And I took it to Eastern Creek. I t- took it to a track day at Eastern Creek, which is where you know men of a certain age, my age, uh, <laughs> take their big motorbikes to ride around very fast. And it was really funny because the people older than me all came up to my electric Harley and went, oh, why would you? The people (laughs) younger than me came up to my electric Harley and went, wow, I can't wait to ride it. Yeah. So there's people that are older that it's going to take time, always framing through the lens of possibility, asking about, okay, so what are you invested in? You're invested in manufacturing. Okay. I think the iron ore output of our country is $70 billion a year. The projected worldwide global green steel market is $700 billion a year. With the right amount of investment in green steel tech and clean energy in Australia, we could become the foundry of the world, all right? Imagine what that would do for our country, just eclipsing what we currently just dig out of the ground and sell. If we became the foundry of the world, exporting steel that has all the carbon taken out of it, so it's arrives offshore to the other country already clean, that is a huge economic upside. Now, tell me who wouldn't want to get in on early on something that's going to go 10x. Come on. Yeah. You know? Yeah, totally. There's, And that's just one example. Yeah. And you, you've shared examples, uh, I think I've heard before, about even the EVs, electric vehicles. Like, in theory, you know, some people will be sad. They're giving up their kind of petrol guzzling car. But, you know, there's a you get a quiet street. If you live on a main road and you've been annoyed about that forever, you know, you can't hear the cars going by. Like, there's these all these benefits to living in this you know, beautiful yeah, new world. Yeah, and let me, because I'm aware of who I'm talking to, let's, you know, let's have a think about exactly where the liquid fuel comes from for a large part of it, all right? Every buck you put into your gas tank, some of those bucks go maybe – Maybe in Australia, we import from 17 separate countries. Maybe some of those bucks go to a country that might not have your shared moral values, yeah. <laughs> right? I hear what you're saying. You may be essentially f- funding a country that you otherwise don't agree with the way they go about things. Completely, yeah. Right now, the task for a lot of people is waiting for, let's say, in the case of electric vehicles, the price to come down a little bit. So, I mean, first movers, that's the interesting thing. For those people who can afford to buy an EV now, that makes it easier for everybody else, right? If you own a company and you can transform the fleet overnight and switch 500 cars, that's 500 cars that are going to be in the secondhand market for EVs for everybody else as soon as possible. Yeah, and that's it. It's it's the, the amazing thing about it. Australia for years has made a lot of money just copying business models that already exist. Like we really <laughs> have. We make a lot of cash just copying things that have worked overseas because we're a similar market to either the US or the EU. And the, the rollout model has been displayed in the, in the EU for, for over a decade now, and that it is local government or, or, as you mentioned, large business. They go, click of a finger, all right, we're going to make our fleet green because, A, it's cheaper to run. Uh, the maintenance costs on my – I had a 2012 LEAF and my six-year service was 140 bucks. <laughs> wow. 
six year service was a hundred. That's just to fix the radio of most other cars. <laughs> oh mate, it was the, the the cheaper to maintain. If you put solar panels on the roof of your factory or foundry or office blocks, they're free to run. You know, it it's, it just makes sense. But then, as you mentioned, once those cars come out of their uh, leasing cycle, boom, your second hand fleet shows up and then if local government use it they put charging points all around the joint and that shows oh because people like we found out with mask wearing people don't do it because the right thing to do people do it because they see other people doing it you gotta you gotta you gotta demonstrate it's like kids you know they don't do what you tell them to do they do what you show them to do so if you show them even model behavior model behavior gets replicated so just that's what it takes and it takes either local government or or larger you know companies to go this is what we're going to do and look there's great com- great companies like there's a great organization called goodcar.co and they import secondhand um, evs out of japan and they basically wait for enough orders to fill a boat and they bring a boat over I've worked with someone who's got one. She's had it since 2015 and she loves it. The inverter that takes your uh, photovoltaic power off your roof, all right, that inverter that take, converts the, um, the the DC to the AC so it can be fed into the grid, there's a similar inverter that needs to happen to go from the car to the house. All right, not the car to the grid, that's another thing, but the car to the house. So I've got 63 kilowatt hours sitting in my driveway. That's a lot of kilowatt hours. But right now, the inverter that is legal in other countries and has been legal for nearly 15 years is not legal here because someone just hasn't signed the form. Right. That's all it takes. Yeah. Just write write the standard and sign the form. That is all it would take and that's it. Well, that's it. You know, I love that. I love that example. That's an example of kind of systems change, right, or even political engagement. In theory, the person not filling out the form might be some sort of bureaucrat or some sort of politician. Maybe they've got a vested interest. Maybe they're just lazy. Maybe they've forgotten about it. Who knows? But if they just get nudged again and again, phone calls, maybe letters from people, and it's a little thing. It's not necessarily a sexy change. It's just like a little weird regulation that needs to be flipped somewhere to unlock a whole market, and suddenly it's not one person getting solar on their house. It's you've now made this available vehicle to house to hundreds of thousands. Yeah, look, we are the, our nation is the highest uptake of rooftop solar in the world. And we don't do it because we love trees. We do it because we don't like paying large power bills. Yeah. All right. <laughs> and that's where we are now. The economic choice is the sustainable choice. I have a question. It's kind of a little bit of a sidestep, but it's really, it's a question on motivation. You know, we've had a great conversation now about solutions and what people can do in their everyday lives. It can be hard to sustain the motivation to do all the changes. You might start inquiring about your super fund and then, you know, life happens. You've got kids to take care of, you've got work, or sick parents, whatever. So do you have an, a way, are there certain people or certain groups that you tap into who kind of you go on this journey together who, you know, when some person drops out, everybody else motivates them or vice versa? You know, do you have kind of a crew that, you know, you're working on stuff together in terms of climate? Um. Well, I have a I have a, a podcast that I've been running every every week since 2013, mm. and um, it comes out three times a week. And so I, I have conversations like we're having quite a lot. Mm. And for me, I find that 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 very motivating. But also, I, I find it, you know, every, every day someone ha- has their eyes open. Every day, someone goes, "Oh, I never thought about it that way." And whether it's a conversation about my electric car. Or my amazing bicycle. I have a, every time I take Wolfie to the park on my bike, they're like, "What's that?" It's like that's the reason I don't drive a car to the shops or to the beach or to you know because I can just ride. Yeah, and it's amazing. Mm. Oh, oh, I thought, uh, like if you make the, it's look, I just like, just think of the kids, mate. <laughs> think of the kids. Like for us, mm. all we all we can do, like if you really want to think about it, all we can do have a have a decent look 
at what the world's going to look like in 2030, 2040, 2050. Look at your kids, look at your grandkids. All right. There's things that we can do now, as you mentioned, Joel, within the next 20, 10, 20 years that will make a direct impact on their not only quality of life, but the jobs they may be able to get, the country they may be able to live in, the amount of money that our country has to spend on a healthcare system. You know, because right now a little too much of our GDV might be tied up in like two products, coal and iron. So let's maybe uh, diversify a bit, guys, because uh, one of those is a you know on the list of things we don't need anymore. So you know, it's it's like you would you would plan your retirement, or you know, you think about oh, this is where I'm going to live. I'm going to live here until you know I, I'm 75, and then I'm going to go go live over there. So, okay, well, think about that. If you're thinking that far ahead for yourself, think of that far ahead for your kids. What are you going to do? What kind of legacy do you want to leave for your kids? What kind of, if you want to leave, if you want to, you know, be a part of a generational wealth transfer, what kind of wealth will still be there if your investments aren't great or are tied up in things that are uh, going to be impacted? You know, we talk about the insurability of housing in Australia. Like you might own a house on a marina in Townsville now, but come on, man, if you're thinking, oh, it's seven bedrooms, it's amazing, I'll leave it to the kids. Well, you know, it's getting hit by a cyclone four times a year and you can't insure it, or you can, but it's going to cost you 50 grand a year. Do they want it? Maybe not. So That's a whole new level of forward planning. I mean, most people do not think really beyond their, I don't know, next three months, six months, 12 months if you're lucky, but, no. you know, this is generational planning is what this is. Yeah, but it's it's thinking, it's stuff like that. It's it's putting extra insulation in your house. And if you, it's simple, it's simple as... Yeah, you're uh, you're in Melbourne, Joel. Yeah, it's this. I grew up in Queensland, where some of the coldest winters I've ever spent my life were in Queensland, in Brisbane, because the houses are just leaky. All right, just there's no air, air just falls out of them. Every time you turn a heater on in a leaky house, you are literally sending bucks under the door out the, out the windows. You know, the cash is just leaving your home. It's as simple as like just understanding if you want to save money, you know, do the right thing as far as keeping enough cash for yourself. I mean, you know, it, it's it's doing things like sealing up your house. You don't have to necessarily have to buy a take a keep cup to the cafe every time you go, yeah. though that can help. It's <laughs> just go down to Bunnings, get a corking gun and, you know, you know, shove a shove a bit of you know spray foam in the in the in the leaky bits, and that might keep your energy bill right down. And by reducing your energy bill, you're reducing the need for base load, which is reducing the need for you know more generation, which is you know it, it just kicks on down the line, down the line, down the line. Yeah, and that's the economic benefits aligning with the environmental climate benefits you mentioned. Yeah, but ultimately, you've got to have you've got to have upstream solutions. Like mm-hmm. it's all well and good for the people of Brisbane to go, it's fine, we'll just put our houses on stilts. No, we're going to need to build Wyvernhoe Dam. We really are we can't have a flood like 1974 again and so they did so there has to be an upstream solution and this is where we've just seen in our most recent election that i mean we're not idiots we're not a nation of idiots and after being nine years of being treated like that by you know people who bring lumps of coal to parliament and telling us everything's going to be fine (laughs) we know it's not Mm. so in droves we voted for people who could kind of see sense essentially yeah. Yeah. and holding people in power to account. And you mentioned it before. I talked to my MPs all the time. When Dave Sharma was on board, I spoke to Sharma a lot. Yeah. Have, have him on speed dial. <laughs> well, not exactly speed dial, but I did, I did have his email address and he would write back to me. Bless yeah. him. He would write back to me. But it's, it's knowing how to frame stuff to him. I think we were talking about this and that. And I remember talking to him once on the phone going, yeah, but mate, sea level rise in the next hundred years, you gotta we really ah, oh, but this and the other. It's like, Dave, you used to be an ambassador for, you know, you're the ambassador for Israel. You're over there. Yeah, yeah, it was okay. So you're aware, you know, uh, the the 
the, the push and shove over over who's got what land in Syria. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, that's right. The entire river valley, uh, I think it's the Tigris River, it's, it's two and a half meters above sea level. All right? The entire country. Like what's going to happen if a meter of sea level rise happens? If a meter and a half, what's, what's the pressure going to be like there? I mean, when I was in um, uh, Israel last, which was – as well again, it was 2014. I remember running. I would run back when I could run. I would I would always jog along the beach in the mornings. Um, I got a bung hip now. I can't run anymore. But I would jog along the beach in the mornings. And I was running north once. And um, I remember years ago when I first went there. It's like oh, it's fine. Just don't don't run west. Don't <laughs> <laughs> run west. North, that's fine. Don't run west. That's hilarious. Um, but there's one point where there's 16 k's between the Mediterranean and the West Bank. So what would sea level rise do? For that part of the world, all right. There's already a lot of pressure on who gets to live where. I mean, you can we can acknowledge that there's a huge amount of pressure on on land there. Decreasing the overall available land mass for everybody who would like to live there, that's going to lead to something that maybe we're not wanting to think about, but we have to face it. We have to face it and understand that those things are at stake. But you might not think that what you do in your day to day can shift that. But it bloody can. And this is why having conversations with, you know, the older people in your life about where their investments are and about, you know, what's it going to look like in 10, 20 years from now. And it's not this, oh, the atmosphere is fine and it's all a lie. No, actually, it isn't. And it's important that we talk about the uncomfortable stuff because then we can talk about the possibility on the other side of that. Exactly. I love that. I love that. Well, that's a perfect segue, I guess, to the final question I'd love to hear your thoughts on before we do a bit of a shofar blow or a bit of an alternative in this case, okay, um, <laughs> is at the end of uh, the Day of Atonement, right, is this climax. Everyone's been fasting for 25 hours. They're starving. They're hungry. Yeah. They're irritated. Yeah. And there's this long blow of the shofar. You know, if you've got a good shofar blower, yeah. you might get 15, 20 seconds. Very impressive. Round of applause. Sometimes they struggle. They only get like a six second one but you get a long one and there's this kind of sigh of relief that everyone has almost set an intention all right it's all been said and done we've yeah. got it all out on the table and somewhere there's this one horned goat looking up and turning <laughs> oh that's where it is <laughs> give that back i'm wondering why i keep turning right this whole time <laughs> like zoolander wait he can't turn right i think <laughs> exactly uh, what's one intention that you would love people to have in their minds, in their hearts, when that after the shofar blows, you know, at the end of that day for the year ahead, when we're thinking about the world, climate, all that? One intention to sit with people. But I'm going to kind of paraphrase Alan Watts here. Mm. I can't talk about Joel. I couldn't talk about the way that you walk if I didn't speak about the environment that you walk in. All right. If I was trying to describe the way you walk, I'd be describing essentially a 3D model sitting on a computer screen, swinging his legs back and forth in space. To describe the way you walk, I have to go, oh, so Joel, when he walks uh, along a flat piece of surface or when he walks along the sand or when he walks along grass or when he walks upstairs or you know, when he walks into, into a synagogue, he walks a little bit this way, his left heel ticks out of it. So I have to describe the environment that you walk in to describe you. You cannot exist without the environment. All right. I've got a little book that I read Wolfie at home. Wolfie's a, we've got two kids. One's nearly 19. Wolfie's nearly three. Um, I've got a book about seeds and plants. And we talk about this particular, this plant, the book all talks about how seeds grow into fruit and into trees and that we can't, that the, the plants breathe in what we breathe out and we breathe in what they breathe out. We are a part of a whole. As much as we like to think that we are an individual person, we are a part of a whole. We are a part of a system. And 
if we think of ourselves as a part of a system, and it's okay, that system can just include your kids and your family, all right? It doesn't it does include all seven and a bit billion of us, but it can just include the people that you know and love. It's not just you. So making a choice, making a choice that's not just about you when it comes to where you spend your money and where you invest, um, that's what I would that's what I would ask. Because ultimately, if you're smart about it, then you will benefit as well. Beautiful. All right. Uh, thank you so much, Osha. Before we sign off, uh, we have so appreciated your time and your thoughts and your reflections. We're now going to get a little bit musical. We're going to ask all of our guests to have a crack at blowing the shofar. But you don't have a shofar. What is this instrument? Even before you have a crack at this, I don't think most people know what this is. What is this called? Sorry, buddy. I, I, I looked everywhere. I looked everywhere this morning and I couldn't find a goat. Ah. So I have I have no shafar for you, but I do have a melodica. It's a it's a hone melodica, and um, you may recognise this instrument as the instrument that makes this noise. Joe. So it's the it's the <laughs> instrument that oh. plays the bluey theme song. I'm so happy right now. Um, I'm so happy right now. Yeah, it's so it's so, mate. If you want to be the Pied Piper of Hamlin and shut up an entire room of toddlers, get yourself a melodica and play the bluey theme song. They go. They just turn. That's amazing. So I don't have a, don't have a shofar, but I do have a melodica. But thankfully, because it is a, a reed, in, I guess essentially a reed instrument, and it's uh it's it's blown, so it should hopefully sound kind of. No, sorry. I'm such a bad guy. So good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to make a submission to um, the people who decide, um, you know, the shofar that we have to blow it and perhaps change it to something a little bit more melodic. To a melodica. To yeah, a yeah. melodica. <laughs> I'm sorry. I really apologize. That's a really noticeable melody to a lot of people and I completely blew it. Uh, sorry. I loved it. I loved it. Asha, thank you so very much for being with us, sharing Thanks. your thoughts. Very heartfelt, very wise, and I'm sure. Sorry I swore so much because it might limit your ability to share this uh, with your babuchka. Um, it's okay. Or your babita in my case. <laughs> You may need to bleep that part. We'll bleep as needed, or we just won't bleep, you know? Like, these are real topics, you know? we got to talk real. Appreciate you having me on. Thanks for having me, mate. Thanks for tuning in to JCN's Elul Climate Podcast after the Shofar. We'll be back with another episode next week. If you want to learn more about what was discussed in the podcast, check out our show notes. Until then, follow us on our social media, at Jewish Climate Network, to see what else we're up to. We hope your week is filled with teshuva, tefillah, tzedakah, and thinking about how we will make the coming year count for our climate. Shana tovah.